0: How many here know Rob Bell by name, by the way? How many are aware of Rob Bell? Okay, boy, very, very few. Okay. So uh, Rob Bell uh, sort of astounded the evangelical world in 2012 uh, with a book he wrote called uh, Love Wins. And to sort of set this up and why the book was significant uh, nationally, internationally related to him, uh, Rob Bell is a graduate of Wheaton College, he's a graduate of Fuller Seminary. Kind of an odd guy in some ways, but he was really a gifted communicator, is a gifted communicator. And he had served in ministry for a while and he went to Michigan and he started what was initially a very small church. And that church just burgeoned immediately under his teaching gift and his leadership. It became a mega church almost overnight. Rob Bell was a popular speaker, author. He was speaking to sell out crowds around the United States, also in England at least, if not other parts of Europe as well. Um, he was uh, not only a gifted communicator, author, he did videos, um, he, he was an up and comer. I think one of the secular magazines said he's one of the most 100 important influential speakers in the United States at that time. So that's that's kind of persona that came that brought out this book called love wins. And the shocker was, here's this evangelical that's leading people to Christ who in this book says, basically, love wins means no one goes to hell. Now, you and I are probably sympathetic to that, right? In the sense that, wouldn't it be great if no one went to hell on one hand? But the problem with that, of course, is Jesus says there's a hell and there will be people in it. And scripture is clear on this. So here's this orthodox evangelical who who comes out of nowhere as far as people could see and says, effectively, there is no hell. God's word isn't true. Well, you can imagine this alienated not only people around the country. He left the church. He started. The the church wasn't in agreement with any of that. He's still speaking around the world today. sells his services as a communicator today. But basically, it started at there's no hell, and then more recently... You know how these things go when you migrate, the migration continues usually. So he's since affirmed a same-sex everything, same-sex love, same-sex marriage, etc. So it was a shocker. So you gotta ask yourself, what led a guy like Rob Bell? Guys, he was one of us, right? He was, he was an evangelical, believed in the Gospel, Jesus, the Bible, that's where he started. What could lead him from where he was to where he is today? Now more recently, and many of you are aware of this, similar defection, but but frankly more abruptly from the faith entirely in the person of Josh or Joshua Harris. Now if you're from a homeschooling background, Josh Harris is probably well known. This was a guy that was writing a magazine for homeschooled teens when he was a teenager. I think his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, came out when he was maybe 21 years old. He was on national television on talk shows. That book sold over a million copies. It transformed, or it was part of a transformation. Back in the day of True Love Waits, he was part of that movement. Influential guy. He went to a large church, C.J. Mahaney's church in Maryland, uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland. And at 30 years old, when Mahaney left, Josh Harris was made the senior pastor of that church. He married the love of his life. He was raising kids. You know, everything's coming up daisies. Life is grand on any scale that a Christian, a committed evangelical Christian could think. Anyway, the church there had some issues, though I'm not quite sure that's the reason that he left, but he did leave and he went to, I believe it's uh, British Columbia, to a seminary there. He was going to get the education, formal seminary education he never had, but basically he came out a couple weeks ago and just Twittered or tweeted or, I I don't even know which social media thing this (laughs) platform is, (laughs) so... You guys will know and I don't. I just have the the clip. But anyway, he basically said after 20 years of marriage, he and his wife are divorcing. It's like, wow, that's a shocker. A week later, he says, oh, and by the way, the thing that I didn't share about our divorce is that I'm not a Christian. He said by, this is his quote at the bottom of this, by all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. And again, the same question comes up. It's not just that it's the shock that this guy that's one of us, the last person in the world that you think would either divorce, much less say I'm not a Christian. Uh, what could lead him from where he was to where he is today? And, and what I want to suggest is that, and neither one of these guys have said this, but this is my take and this will lead us into the text this morning. I think that what they did step by step, and you know a lot of times defection as far as outwardly appearing, defection may seem to appear or occur in a moment, but if you talk to that person, what you really find out is there's been defection all along the way, that this is simply the last step. Uh, Years ago, decades ago, I was having a conversation with another a guy, a pastor of a church here, and, and he told me he was having a meeting with a, with a very well-known person who wanted to talk to him about leaving evangelical faith for something else. And he said, well, what should I say? And I said, I wouldn't worry about what you say. I said, this is a courtesy call. He's simply giving you the end of a result, the end of a process he's been in. He's not asking you To give him input, he's giving you the courtesy call that says, I'm leaving, which is exactly what he was doing. But that's the way defection works. But this is what I think. That all along the way, at some point, little decisions were coming in, and they were faced with things they didn't like as an evangelical Christian, things they found uncomfortable, same same things perhaps that you and I might find uncomfortable. And rather than say, God, you're God, and your word is truth, and even if I struggle with some element of that, I know who you are, I know what you've done, and I submit to you, they say, I'm gonna substitute what I used to say was true, what I used to agree with, and I'm gonna say something else now instead. And by the way, hell's a real sticker on this, guys, and, and I will confess, there are times when I think about hell for people I know, or have known, or friends, as a possibility it is emotionally gripping. It's a challenge emotionally. Our sympathies go to those people. I wrote a blog on this. My blog site's on your, the bottom of your study sheet. But I think for a lot of people, that's it. And in fact, I think for both of these guys, I think hell was uh, significantly the sticking point. And at that point, rather than say God is true, I'll call God true and all men a liar, I agree with God in his word, they substitute something that at least in the moment feels better. You know, for Rob Bell, uh, love wins means no one goes to hell, even though Jesus talks about hell and who's going to be there, who is going to be there. Revelation tells us who's going to be there. You know, Josh Harris, he, his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, was followed decades later by this documentary called I Survived I Kissed Dating Goodbye in which he interviews people that read his book back in the day and they felt abused by the book. They felt like I gave myself to the teaching you told me about courtship versus dating, purity, personal purity, et cetera. And it seemed that what he thought was a biblically informed decision changed because of his sympathy with people for whom life didn't come out the way they thought it would. I thought I'd do what your book said and life didn't come out the way I thought. So what we're really looking at this morning in the figure that we'll look at is this concept of I'm substituting one thing for another. I'm substituting what I choose to call my new reality or life as it really is for what I, at least in the past, acknowledged to be true. I'm substituting, and guys, I'm making a fool's trade. We're in the Heroes and Villains series this morning. We're looking at King Ahab. Son of Omri, he's a villain. And by the way, this is the 34th lesson. So this is the first lesson of the second half of 66 lessons, Lord willing. The first half, you've got on your study sheet a very short timeline. 20 heroes of the faith, 13 villains of the faith. And you remember, it's important to define what we're talking about in the series. There's a danger in reading biblical stories and simply coming away moralistic do this, don't do that. And that's not what we're talking about. We've said heroes of the faith, they display some key elements of Christ-like faithfulness. Jesus is the only one who's been fully faithful to God, the only one that could be. But his life is in us, and so we see glimpses of Christ-like faithfulness in these heroes of the faith. Like us, they have feet of clay, they sin, they need forgiveness, absolutely. Christ is the ultimate hero, but we catch glimpses of what that looks like in these folks' lives. And so we want to emulate them. Christ's life is in us as believers. We want Christ's life to become more the norm for us, and we see elements of that in their lives. But we also see faithlessness. We see the kinds of decisions and mindsets to avoid in the villains. And guys, Ahab is one of the villains of all villains in the Old Testament, if you remember his story. His wife, as famous as him, is Jezebel. We're not actually going to talk much about Jezebel this morning. In fact, the the message, uh, what we'll go through on Ahab itself is actually very concise and very brief. But the series started shortly after creation. We looked at Cain and Abel, and we marched along the timeline from the Old Testament. Abraham's around 2,000 B.C., Moses and the Exodus around 1446, David around 1,000. You remember we got to King Solomon, took us up to the end of his reign at 930 B.C., And this morning we're jumping in at King Ahab at about 875 B.C. So he's the seventh king in Israel. And I think that's significant. You know, seven is a number of completion. A week is a seven. And God often describes things in the future prophetically as units of seven. Uh, He's the seventh king. and, And it's as if in Ahab the characteristics of all the kings of Israel are seen. You remember a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Jeroboam, we said there's not one good king in the history of Israel. Never. In fact, there's not a consistent monarchy either because one line gets displaced by another because of their sinfulness. So Ahab the seventh, he's the son of Omri. Omri displaced Zimri and became king. Uh, 875 BC, Asa is king in Judah. Does anyone else get confused when you read through Kings or Chronicles and it says this is the king in Judah and the X year of his reign, so and so became... You know, there's two Jehorams reigning at the same time. Jehoram in Israel, Jehoram in Judah. It's like, who's on first? I don't know. But Asa was a good king in Judah, the fourth king there. He's in the 38th year sort of declining when Ahab comes on the scene. And the main point, again, what we're looking at this morning, uh, there's Israel... I'll just mention, you can see the little crown circled by black at the bottom, sort of center of your screen. That's Bethel. That was initially Jeroboam's uh, uh, capital. And also where he instituted idolatry with a calf in the south. Dan, right up there at the top of the map, was the same idol in the north. And then the purple circle is Samaria. You can still see basically sort of in the center of the kingdom of Israel, and that's where Ahab moves his capital, and that's where it will remain, basically, for the duration of the kingdom of Israel. Uh, sorry, so now to the main point. The main point is this. There's always a temptation to substitute something or someone for God and God's will, and the substitutes are always a fool's trade. You know, guys, when we sin, or you see your friend sin, doesn't matter who, When we sin and we choose to sin, and that's what Ahab does. Ahab chooses to sin. He intentionally makes substitutions, trades. It's not a lack of knowledge. And when you do that, or I do that, or anyone else does that, and you say, maybe, what's what's wrong with them? We're always getting something when we choose sin. When we make that substitute, we're always getting something. Humans are rational in that. It's just that what we're getting isn't worth the trade that what we're substituting as Christians who follow Christ, when we choose to sin, we're always getting something lesser, not something greater. It's fool's gold and it's a fool's trade. When we substitute something that we know is true of Christ, God, the Scriptures, God's call in our life, the substitution is always lesser, it's not greater. And that's what you'll see in Ahab's life as well. Uh, we're going to be, and I should say this too, I'm looking at a really, really, really small slice of Scripture for this message on Ahab. We're going to be in 1 Kings 16, 29 through 34. His story occupies seven chapters, and we're basically looking at one paragraph. This paragraph encapsulates what God said about Ahab. And the primary lessons for us in Ahab's life are in or out of this paragraph. In his story, you've also got famous stories, some of which we'll see later when we look at Elijah. But we've got the famous story of Elijah at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. We're not looking at that this morning. We've got the story of Naboth and his vineyard and Jezebel's murder so she could give her husband Ahab the vineyard. We're not looking at that. We're not looking at the droughts. We're looking at this summary paragraph God gives us about Ahab, what he traded, and why he sold out. So this is page 298 of your pew Bible, if you read from there. This is the ESV. So 1 Kings 16, 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's an interesting statement isn't it then all who were before him verse 31 and as if it had been a light thing for him we'll talk about that in a minute to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat Israel's first king he took for his wife he added to that initial sin he took for his wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal king of the Sidonians and went and served Baal and worshipped him He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Asherah is another idol, a female idol. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So we're going to start with that phrase that Ahab, as if it wasn't enough, this is where Ahab starts. So God's indictment of Ahab's faithlessness starts with the sins of Jeroboam. So you remember in 930, Jeroboam was that guy that lived under King Solomon that God picked and said, I'm making you king of the new kingdom in the north, the northern ten tribes. And we said that God gave Jeroboam the same promises he gave David. If you'll be with me, if you'll be my man, if you'll be faithful, if you'll obey, I'll bless you, I'll be with you, I'll bless your line, you'll reign just like David did, was. So that's the promise, same promise. But you remember what Jeroboam did? So he's heard clearly from God. This isn't a question of knowledge again. He's heard from God, but he doesn't trust God. He thinks he's got a better plan. So he substitutes his plan for God's plan. And so to keep citizens of Israel, those northern tribes, from going down into the southern kingdom so they could worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, Jeroboam sets up those two idol centers, one in the north, one in the south. He has these golden calves created just like in the story of the Exodus. And he tells the citizens of Israel, these are your gods, and this is where you worship. And he substitutes these gods for Yahweh. He substitutes a new priesthood. He substitutes feasts. You know, everything's a downgrade from what God gave them, but it's because he intends to keep his citizens. He says, basically, I've got a better plan than God. I can't trust God. I can trust myself. I'll turn to these idols. It's an entirely man-made religion. We made the calves, and now we say, they're God, and now we bow down to them. It's like, really? This is not a knowledge issue. That's what Jeroboam chose to do. And God says to Ahab when he introduces him, it's as if you thought that was a little thing. So where Ahab starts is where God's condemnation of his faithfulness begins. He starts right where Jeroboam left off. So this is 55 years later. Ahab comes on the scene, and he embraces the gods that Jeroboam had made and instituted. Now Ahab does this just like Jeroboam with his eyes wide open. It's not a question of knowledge. He's making a practical substitution because he thinks it's in his best interest to do so. Twice in 1 Kings 20, Israel is faced with these huge Syrian armies that are going to come in and wipe them out. There's no question that Israel defend itself. None at all. And God says twice through the prophet, he says, I'm going to deliver. The prophet goes to to Ahab and says, this is what I want you to do because I'm going to deliver you from this invading army. You have no chance on your own. This is what I'm going to do. And listen to what he says. And you shall know that I am the Lord. He tells him beforehand. You know, when you read Isaiah and God's challenging Israel... He says, I'm the God that will tell you what happens before it happens. He says, your idols, not only can they not speak, but they can't tell you what's going to happen. So God tells Ahab, this is what I'll do for you, so you'll know I'm God. And then he does it. So Ahab, his eyes are wide open. He knows exactly Yahweh's God. These statues are man-made. They're nothing. Also later in 1 Kings 21, verses 20 through 24, Elijah goes to Ahab and he says, man, God is going to cut you down. He's going to wipe out your line because you've been so evil and wicked. And the text says this, that Ahab repented. So the God who said, you'll know I'm God because this is what I'm going to do, speaks to him and says, man, you're done. I'm taking you down. Ahab repents. He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. He fasted. And God says this to Elijah, have you seen how Ahab humbled himself before me? Does Ahab know who God is? He absolutely knows who God is. It's not a knowledge issue. He's making a trade. He's substituting something because he wants some other payoff instead of what God promised. So eyes wide open, not an issue of knowledge. I'm substituting something else for God. 1 Kings 21-25 is God's summary of the life of of Ahab, he says, there was none who, and listen to the phrase, who sold himself. It's a conscious decision. It's like a trade. It's like I'm buying something, only I'm being sold. He sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. This unholy trade, eyes wide open, he substitutes his will for God's because he thinks he's going to get something better out of it than God provides. Before we move on, and you know we do this week by week, what are implications for us? Is there a chance that you or I would follow Rob Bell? Who, who would have thought Josh Harris would follow Rob Bell? So it does us well to ask ourselves the serious questions. We've got to be very careful because remember, digression from the truth, the substitutions we make, they are little steps before they are big leaps. They are always little steps first. Am I choosing what's convenient instead of what's true? I know the truth, content, knowledge isn't the issue. Am I choosing against that? Am I choosing my own desires instead of what I know to be God's will? And by the way, all of us us are in the same boat. All of us have temptations we face. We want something, we don't want something, and we're tempted to skinny something out of God's word or God's will because we don't want to face something, the loss of something or gaining something we didn't want. Uh, What people value, are we substituting what people value for what pleases God? And this is a big deal. And guys, I think for both of those guys we started with, I think the desire to say to other people, I'm okay and you're okay, is why they fell. I think social acceptance among others is in part why they fell. And you know, social media is just a tool, just like TV or any other electronics, but I think it has tended to highlight the fact that all of us want to be accepted. Everyone knows they're broken inside. Everybody knows they're not okay. And one of the ways we feel better is if other people affirm us. But the ultimate affirmation can only, be, can only come through Christ. Our sins are forgiven and God the Father says, you're mine. And nothing, nothing now stands between us. Short of that, we look for other people to tell us we're okay. And I think that's what's happened in this. And all of us are subject to that same temptation. Something else, Jeroboam's sin starts where someone else left off. Many of you were raised in a Christian home, and you've heard the gospel and God's word since as long as you can remember. And at some point in your life, the Spirit was at work in you, and you volitionally chose to say, that faith is my faith, that God is my God, that truth is the truth. Many of us didn't grow up in homes like that. And it bears all of us well when we come in to life, to a new job, to a new place of employment, to school, to new friendships, to ask ourselves what's being sold here and is this what I want to include in my life? If you come up with a new set of friends and the first time that temptation to do something, to go along with the joke or the practice or whatever it is, when it comes up, do you excuse yourself Or do you swallow and just stay there and become one of the group? You see, that's all Ahab did. He just went along with the idolatry that already existed. And God says that wasn't a little thing. He was responsible. He knew who God was. He was responsible. He was sinning, making that unholy trade with his eyes wide open. And we may not say we could fall there today... But when we make those small compromises and substitutions over time, we can. None of us are immune from this. So that wasn't bad enough, God says. So 1 Kings 16.31, As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. So he, he adds to that initial sin, I'm embracing the idolatry of Jeroboam by marrying Jezebel. Uh, Now, Ethbaal is not only the king of Sidon, he's the king of Tyre, he's the king of the Phoenicians along the Mediterranean coast. This is a big, powerful guy. The Phoenicians were traders, they were powerful militarily. Tyre and Sidon were key areas for trade. So Ahab is marrying the daughter of a very wealthy, powerful man. And then it says this at verses 32 and 33. Ahab went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So the center of new idolatries in his own backyard. And Ahab made an Asherah. So Ahab baptizes the worship of Baal and Asherah because those were... Jezebel's God. So he brings in Jezebel's idols on top of the calf idols he started with from Jeroboam. Baal was the storm god throughout the Middle East. Baal and Asherah were popular basically from the Mediterranean, the eastern end of the Mediterranean eastward into what would be modern day Iran and Iraq. And Baal was not the chief god. El is the chief god. But Baal is the storm god, and he's the god that brings rain. And so they worship Baal as the god who, you can imagine most of that an arid region, the god who would bring rain and therefore life. That was Baal. And so the prophets of Baal, we'll look at this with Elijah next week. But you remember, Jezebel loves the god Baal, she supports the priesthood and the institution of Baal worship. And then Asher, we don't have good figures for, but we know that Asher was worshipped as a vertical pole. And we really, archaeologists aren't sure exactly what this looked like. Might have been carved like a woman, might have been carved like a tree. But Asher was seen either as the high god El's wife. Sometimes she was seen as Baal's consort. But Jezebel, these are her gods. And so because they're her gods, Ahab not only embraces Jezebel, he embraces her gods as well. 1 Kings 21-26 says he acted very abominably going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Isn't that interesting? If you go back to Genesis to the early chapters, uh, 13 at least, God tells Abraham, I'm going to give your descendants this land, but not yet. It's going to be 400 years away because, and he says, the sin of the Amorite is not yet full. I'm going to give, they're going to have a life for the next 400 years. But then I'm going to judge them. The Amorites worship the gods that Ahab has now brought in to Israel. In other words, the reason God kicked the Canaanites out of the land of promise, those false gods and that idolatry, Ahab has now embraced. Just like in the book of Judges, you can't tell the difference between a Jew and a Gentile. They look the same. They're worshiping the same gods because he married Jezebel and brought in her gods. Now that's a familiar story, isn't it? And think of this for just a minute. The only reason that Ahab is a king over the kingdom of Israel is because God judged Israel and a former king for doing exactly the same thing. Because you remember Solomon's first wife was a princess from Egypt. And it tells us that Solomon marries all these foreign wives and then he creates idol centers for their gods. And Ahab knew that's why God judged David's house in Solomon and it's why the nation was divided and Ahab goes and does exactly the same thing. Now there's got to be a benefit to that, right? There's got to be a reason. He's getting something for it, right? What did Solomon get when he married the princess of Egypt? Well, you know, Egypt is a powerful nation. In fact, under Rehoboam's reign, Egypt comes in Shishak and demolishes Jerusalem and takes whatever he wants and goes back home. Egypt's a powerful nation. And so by marrying the princess from Egypt, Solomon gains safety on his southern border. A lot of these arranged marriages, they were were actually national treaties. And so Ahab marries Jezebel because now his father-in-law is the king, And he's got peace on his northwest coast. And his father-in-law is a guy with a lot of money. Sidon and Tyre were centers of trading. They were getting something for this. They could have married a good Jewish girl. And they didn't. Because they got something for it. They should have married a good Jewish girl. Someone within that same faith and belief. Just the way God had said. But they didn't. And they knew what they were doing. They substituted faithfulness to God for convenience in the way of treaties, and they sold their exclusive relationship with the true and living God for relationships with other people and, of course, their idols as well. So again, just think through before we move on to the last point. Where are those temptations in our own life? Usually we're aware of them. You know, We don't, we don't walk up to a cliff and jump off. We're usually aware one, one step after another in those areas where we're particularly or keenly aware of being tempted. What are those areas? And are we being careful in them? Or are we sort of allowing ourselves the leeway to make some substitutions and some trades that we will later regret? The last thing I want to look at is at the end of our paragraph, uh, verse 34, and it kind of sticks out because it's odd, but it's there for a, a very particular reason. In his days, when Ahab was king, Hiel from the city of Bethel, built Jericho. It doesn't tell us about any other things here that were going on, but this must be key, and it is. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord. If you remember back in Joshua, uh, Joshua, when the walls of Jericho had fallen, he had in God's name pronounced a curse on anyone who would come back and rebuild this city. And he said they'll lay the foundation with the life. Their firstborn will die if they lay that foundation, and their youngest son will die if they set up the gates of that city again. Now what's the deal with Jericho, and why does God bother to tell us the city's rebuilt? So you remember when Israel comes into the land under Joshua, the first foe in front of them is the city of Jericho, down on the plains near the river. And God tells them, when you guys go and you take this city, everything and everyone in it is to be destroyed. Now, we've got Rahab and her family. We know that, but leave that aside. Everyone and everything in that city is to be destroyed. You take nothing out of it. Jericho, as that first city they confront, represents the rest of the nation as well. And the whole land of the Canaanites is under God's judgment. God says, you've had your time. You've, you've, You've refused to repent. You've filled up the cup of your sins. And now it's my judgment. And so he tells the Jews, take nothing out. So when this city is being rebuilt under Ahab's watch, it's as if the nation and the king are saying, all that God found deficient in Jericho, we embrace. All that God said, get rid of and have nothing to do with it, we're welcoming back in. Because we're rebuilding the place God cursed. Now think of this for just a second. If you told Jews in, Jericho's, in Joshua's day, oh, by the way, they are going to rebuild that city. Your people are going to rebuild that city. I think they'd have said, no way. But you get down the road a little bit and they do. You know, guys, churches today are embracing concepts that are just part of the culture and the world. That if you'd have said 20 or 30 years ago, Christian churches would embrace it, they'd have said, no way. I had a conversation with someone here a couple of weeks ago, and she was saying, you know, all the mainline churches, they're dying. They're dying out. And I said, well, yeah, because they're irrelevant. Because they've embraced, they've they've rebuilt Jericho. They've brought in all the things that God condemned, and they said they're just fine. Well, guys, if I'm fine as I am, and you're fine, why would I go to your church? I don't need your church. The church is doing the same thing today that Ahab's guy, Heel did then. And in in rebuilding Jericho, it was this affirmation, what God despises, we hold highly. We're substituting what God condemned for life and knowledge with God. That was the trade. That was the substitution. It's rebellion. Yeah, pure and simple. So, what sins does God call us to flee from that we might be tempted to entertain? Or what temptations to compromise we face at school, work, home, and social media. And guys, we're in our holy huddle this morning, which is great. It's good to be here. Glad we're here. Glad you're here. Glad I'm here. But when we go out, and it's not the people that agree with us that are around us, that's where these challenges face. And I don't want to minimize or poo-poo the temptation to change what we say or act like we believe When we're in a group that doesn't believe anything we hold true at the end of the day, ultimately. And it's, are we going to be the abject rejects of that group? Are we going to step up and say, (laughs) My son-in-law told me a story. I'll make it very general so I I don't give anything up. But he was with a group. (laughs) He was with a group. And he fits right in that group at one hand, right? And they know... Steve's good. He's he's like one of us. Until something related to morality and politics came up. And then he said, well, here are my cards. And they cursed and they said, we can't believe that. We thought you were okay. We thought you were a good guy. But that's what all of us are facing, isn't it? In the culture. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And we want to do this. One of the things, uh, John Nelson Darby is one of my heroes as a young believer. Darby said this. Make yourself known as a Christian as soon as you can. You go into a new group, school, new friendship, whatever it is, let them know you're a Christian right away. Why? Because it removes most of the temptation to pretend like you're not. To show your cards right off. I'm a follower of Christ. That's who I am. That's where I'm at. And if you don't, that temptation, now that's not the only temptation, but guys, in our time and culture, it's a very, very significant one. And I think that's why Bell and Harris fell. I think they chose to justify sinful man instead of a loving, perfect, and holy God. I think that's what happened. And so we want to be very careful and not think this only happens to other people. Now I want to close on a highlight. None of us are sinless. And we sin. We sin before we came to Christ. We sin as Christians. We'll sin in the future. Because we blow it. Because we've still got feet of clay. We're in a body of flesh and blood. We still sin. We need cleansing. We need forgiveness. Jesus is the only person who could or did or will live life perfectly. Made no substitutes. You look at Luke 4 and Matthew 4, and you see that the Spirit of God drives Jesus into the desert to weaken him as far as he can be, 40 days with no food, so that he will be tempted in the worst ways possible for a human being. He's God and he's man, but he's fully human. And then he faces temptation after temptation for one substitute after another. Why don't you make the bread? Social standing. By the way, there's an easier way to become king of the worlds. I'll give them to you if you bow down to me. These were all significantly pointed at him and his state of mind at the time, to get him to make a substitution, just like those kings did. And he didn't. And he refused to. We don't kid ourselves that we won't sin, that we'll never fall. And when we fall, we confess our sins, we get back up, and we go on. God our Father embraces us, the blood of Jesus cleanses us. The water of the Word washes us. We're good with that. He's the only one that did or could. And it's because of that that Jesus stands in glory today. It's because of that the Father heaps all glory in heaven on earth goes on King Jesus. Uh, Kathy and I visited an uncle, one of my uncle's favorite uncle, just an outstanding guy, as uh, dying in Manhattan. We went and saw him yesterday morning. And uh, Bill was sort of asking what we thought, you know, after death. And, and um, this is what I described. I said, Bill... He was like, well, you know, you won't, you'll just sort of be assumed into God. And I said, well, you know, no. Uh, transformation on the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration. You know, Peter knows that's Moses and that's Elijah. I said, man, you'll know people in heaven. I said, but this is the deal. Jesus is at the center and all the angels and all the redeemed, all heaven and earth are focused on Jesus, bowing down and worshiping him. That's the deal. And that's because Jesus refused every substitution. And you and I, we should accept no substitutes. Christ and Christ alone is the only one that's worthy of your life and mine. Of everything we are, everything we have. And when we choose to make a substitution, it's always a lesser for the greater. We're giving the greater away. It's a fool's trade. It's fool's gold. And you can see that in the life of Jeroboam and certainly in the life of Ahab as well. Well, with that, why don't you stand and let's read this. And friends, if Christ is your Savior, this is your future and it's mine. And if Christ isn't your Savior, you put the thanks, Ben. Uh, he needs to be. You don't want to die without Christ. And you don't want to live without Christ. Let's read this together. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing amen